Thanks, sir. I, I'm not above carrying my own podium. I just want you, it's like this, this bring forth the podium thing. But <clears throat> it's just kind that I'm carrying a water bottle and a thing, and it's kind that people bring it out, just so you know that there. Good morning. had a tradition of doing something special with each one of my kids as they turned 13. For two of my sons, these trips were climbing 14ers. The first 14er we climbed, my son Bo and I climbed Mount Elbert, and we went with some guys, and when we got down to the bottom, we had kind of this manhood ceremony celebration thing of turning 13. This last summer, for my youngest son, Gus, he turned 13, so we decided to climb Mount Princeton. How many of you love climbing 14ers? I hate climbing 14ers. There is nothing enjoyable in any way about them. They are hard. Both times I did it, I had to have other guys physically push me up the hill. And if I'm being completely honest, I am grateful I don't have any more kids turning 13. Because I'm done with that. Mount Princeton was especially, who's ever done Mount Princeton? Okay. Um, Mount Princeton, there's no trail. It's just like the moon exploded and we're going to climb up it. It's all these little rocks. There's no path. It's horrible. So why do we climb them at all? Because it's an amazing bonding with your son when you tackle a challenge and you succeed together. I'll never forget that moment (coughs) that we crested the hill. We were about to hit it. I I couldn't see the top, but I could see the people's heads that were up there. And I knew we were close. And I started to have hope. Hope that this climb that had begun like five hours before was getting close to conclusion. We pushed through the last 50 yards, and Gus and I crested the hill. Here's a picture of us up there. We did it. (coughs) Uh, Thank you. That's a hat I wear to just protect certain parts of my head from the sun that are more exposed than they used to be. Um, By the way, I'm convinced that 90% of the reason that people climb 14ers is for the photo, right? That's why you do it. Today, Jesus Christ is going to crest a hill. And he's going to see what he has been climbing towards all his life, the end game. All of the hard that he has experienced has led to this point, his end draweth nigh. He has one week of life left, and today is Sunday. Now, before we open the text, I, I, I wanna, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today, but I want to just set the geographic scene for you. Jesus has been traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. This is a long, hard climb. Jericho is the lowest city on earth. It's 846 feet below sea level. Jerusalem, 12 miles away, is 3,000 feet above sea level. And the road that Jesus has been on goes through a very hot, dry desert all the way to the top of the Mount of Olives. Upon cresting that hill, you glimpse your first view of Jerusalem. There she is. So exhilarating, so full of delight, so full of relief when you see there's the city. And you finally get to the top of that hill. Here's a photo of Jesus. Yes, sir, he was up there. Now, what happens at this point in, sorry, what, what happens at this point in the book of Mark is that everything slows 
down. Now, we've been through the book of Mark together, and you know how Mark is pretty quick. He, immediately this happened, immediately this happened, and then this, and I don't have time to include what he said because I've got to tell you what happened next. But all of a sudden, it slows down when Jesus gets to the top of the hill. You know, when you've been on a roller coaster, and you're on that first part, and you're going up, and it's click, 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 and then as soon as you get over the hill, everything goes fast. This is the exact opposite of that. There's a lot that's happened in these first 10 chapters that we've walked through, almost three years worth of stuff. But now, cresting the hill, Mark slows everything down. This happens in all four narratives of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you get to the last week of the life of Christ, they all four slow down. Now, I like to read biographies, and I've noticed very few of them devote more than like 10% to the, to the final days or the, the death of the subject. And even politically charged uh, uh, deaths like Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi. But in the four biographies of Jesus, I just want you to see this. For, I want to put up a graphic here. In the last week of Jesus' life, Matthew devotes 29% of his gospel to it. Mark, that we've been in, devotes 38% to it. Luke devotes a quarter to it. John's getting close to half his gospel being about the last week of the life of Christ. I once heard someone say the gospels are really just chronicles of Jesus' final week with really long introductions. Why? Why is this emphasis on one week? I want to remind you, as we're getting back into Lent, there are three questions Mark wants us to answer. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? What does that mean for my life? And if you think about the Gospel of Mark, the, the first eight chapters are trying to answer that question, who do you say that I am? And we reach that pinnacle moment where Peter goes, well, I think you're the Christ. Immediately after he makes that statement, Jesus pivots and starts to teach them about the cost of following him. He's kind of addressing that third question, what is this going to mean for my life? But it's in this final week of Jesus' life that this question, why did he come to earth, takes center stage. Jesus has come to die. And how he dies lays the groundwork for his resurrection. <clears throat> so the details of his death are worth slowing down for. In these next seven days in Mark, we're going to see the most sophisticated uh, uh, religious system of its time teaming up with the most powerful political empire on earth to go up against a solitary figure, a rabbi from Nazareth. And the outcome of this last week, I believe it's why we're all here. So in Mark chapter 11, Jesus crests the hill, sees Jerusalem that's been waiting for him all this time. It's amazing. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. The translation I am using can be found in our study guide on page 239 if you want. Verse 1, and when they come near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sends two of his students and says to them, go into the village before you. Immediately upon entering it, you will find a foal tied up, which, on which no person ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Jesus is entering Jerusalem during Passover. Passover was uh, like the, the Jewish nation's 4th of July. It was this big celebration of freedom, celebrating when God had delivered them from the Egyptians. They were looking for a new Moses now, a new Messiah that could deliver them from these Romans. 
So there's a lot of charged political stuff happening. All Hebrew men were required to travel to Jerusalem and to celebrate at the temple. Close to two million people would have been pouring into the city, swelling it to three times its size. How many of you heard about the Avs hockey game up at the Air Force Academy? It's like that, but worse. Packed. Jesus and his followers were but a few of the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims that were making their way down this road towards the city. And then Jesus says, I want a foal. A foal is a, a young donkey. <clears throat> why? If anyone says to you why you're doing this, say its master needs it, and he will send it back here at once. So they left, and they found a foal tied at a door outside in the street. They untie it. Some of those standing there said to him, why are you doing this? Why are you untying the foal? But they said to him what Jesus said, and he let them go. The details of his death are worth slowing down for. So Mark gives us more detail now than it seems he's given us up to this point. Why is this donkey so important that he gets three or four verses? 600 years before this moment, there was a prophet named Zechariah who's living with the Jewish people in exile in Babylon after the fall of this same city, Jerusalem. And to the thousands that were imprisoned with him, Zechariah said, I have words from God for you. Things are not always going to be bad. Exile's not always going to be forever. One day, someone's going to come who's going to be our champion, our champion, our savior. He's going to be our king. But the way that this king will arrive will not be like you expect. And Zechariah said this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a... Hmm. Specifically on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus riding on a donkey fulfills this prophecy, but I think it had even more significance. I discovered that in the ancient world, when a city was conquered, you know, after the fat fighting was done and it was clear that it was over, the, the leader of the opposing nation, the king, would ride into the city to kind of survey what had been won. But what he rode in on would make all the difference. If he rode in on a horse, the city was doomed because it was a sign that he had come to bring war. He's on his war horse. But sometimes, to show his intention towards the city, a king would ride in on a donkey. And everyone would breathe a sigh of relief because this was a sign that he's coming in peace. You don't fight a lot of battles on donkeys. He's coming for peace. That helps me understand Zechariah's prediction. This king comes not to wage war, but to present peace. So they bring the foal to Jesus. They throw their outer garments on it. They didn't have a saddle. He sat on it. Many spread their outer garments on the road, while others spread leaves they cut from the fields. Where We know what those are in other gospels. What are those? They're palm branches, right? Palm branches were this, this symbol that had begun to rise up in the nation. It was a symbol of liberation. It was a symbol of welcome to a king, and they're waving these. There's this showing us that there's this growing understanding by people that maybe this Jesus is the king that Zechariah was told him would come, and riding on it. Here he is, and we're, we're welcoming him. Those going ahead and those following behind were crying out. Now, here's what they were crying out. <clears throat> Hosanna. Praise the one coming in the name of the Lord. Praise the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest places. You know, at Christmas time, we have a song book, right, we, that we pull out that we don't really use the rest of the year. And we start singing songs like Away in a Manger, uh, O Come All Ye Faithful, My Favorite Silent Night. 
Roland alluded to this earlier when he talked about the Songs of Ascents, but these celebrants that were all coming into the city for Passover also had a songbook that they pulled out, the Song of Ascents, as they approached the city. One of the most popular psalms sung at Passover was Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, the nation was under attack, and the king cried out to God for salvation. And in this psalm, people cry out, Hosanna. Save us. Save us. So kind of setting the scene is you, you see this big crowd of people, but as, as Jesus is coming through, he's got a procession of people ahead of him. He's got some people behind him, and they're, they're saying this, chanting this psalm back and forth, back and forth. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. This man comes from God. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. He's going to bring back the kingdom. Hosanna in the highest. Salvation is here. As Jesus' followers in front shouted one part, the followers in the back would shout the other. And I want to give you a feel for this. I want you to do something with me. I'm splitting the room right in half. Kendra, right here. You can pick whichever side you're on. You are the left side. You are the right side. Left side. I want you to say these words. You're the L and you're the R. Let's hear it. I'm going to say this in love, but we, we can do better than that, right? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes. I, say it like you mean it. Ready? All right, stand up. One more time. Jesus is in the middle, the crowd is parting, all these people are singing things, but they're singing these words that they normally would have been singing, but now they're singing them to and about Jesus. Go. Louder and louder. It gets, the chant starts to get picked up by the throngs. Stay standing. It gets picked up by the throngs and the multitudes. Other people are starting to chant this too. Pilgrims begin to join in and call out for God. Deliver us, deliver us, save us, save us. Just like Psalm 118. Maybe this was the king. Maybe he would conquer. Maybe he would save. But have a seat. Because we have to ask this question. What were they crying out to be saved from? Rome? For a king to replace David? Did they even really know what they were asking for? Regardless of this answer, this crying out begins to attract the attention of the city leaders and the religious leaders. And that team up begins to really wind up. And he came to Jerusalem, and he went to the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already evening, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is totally my imagination. I imagine Jesus walking around here in the dark, looking at the temple. Kind of like a basketball player the night before the big game, and he, he has to get the janitor to let him in, and no one's there. He's quiet. His footsteps are echoing on the floor. And he's just looking around the game that's going to take place. And I wonder, Jesus is imagining the things that are going to happen here 
over his last seven days. This is where it all starts to come down. In our study guide, there is a quote by a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas who says, it's tempting for us, people who've learned to distinguish between politics and religion, mostly, <laughs> to describe his entry into Jerusalem as political and his entry into the temple as religious. But his going into the temple is perhaps even more politically significant than his triumphant entry because the temple defines Israel. The worship of God and political obedience are inseparable. The abuses surrounding the temple and Israel's political subjugation are but aspects of the same political reality. It's setting a stage for what's going to happen tomorrow, Monday, that we'll see next Sunday, what Jesus does in this temple. But for us today, I wonder this. When we cry out, Hosanna, God, save me. What are we really wanting to be saved from? Now, I don't, I'm going to do something I don't normally like to do in my teaching. I, I don't like to jump out of one gospel and bring in another gospel because I like to think, well, Mark had a reason for not saying this thing that John did or that Luke did. And I, let's just stick with what Mark said. But in this case, I think it's helpful to see something that Luke tells us. Luke gives us a detail that no other gospel has. Describing this same moment, Luke adds in, when he drew near, when he saw the city, he what? This is the Jesus wept verse. Why did Jesus weep when he crested the hill? He saw the city. Crowds are chanting. Day of triumph. Prophecies are coming true. Why does he weep? We don't know what's in his heart. But Luke does tell us what comes out of his mouth. And maybe this might explain it. <clears throat> when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said this. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, Jerusalem. And surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone on top of another. Jesus is looking at this city that he loves. He knows its past, and he also knows its future. He knows that in a few decades from this moment, the Jewish people will say, well, we've had enough. We're going to revolt against our Roman oppressors, and the Romans are going to rage back with a siege that lasts four months. And Jesus is foreseeing a coming conflict that's going to end with one million, uh, one million dead, thousands enslaved, and forced to work as gladiators or sentenced to hard labor, the temple burned to the ground. And this, stones scattered without one upon another. Maybe Jesus weeps because he sees this and knows it could be avoided. Jesus weeps because he has come to bring peace, yet people are going to reject him because he's not bringing the peace that they expect. They think bringing the Romans down will bring the peace. Maybe Jesus weeps when we reject his Hosanna and seek our own. The things that make for peace are not overthrown regimes. The things that make for peace is the overthrow of hearts. 
these chanting crowds needed deliverance from their real oppressor, their own sin. Instead of saying, Hosanna from the Romans, they should have been saying, Hosanna for me. And here's what I think the point is, is that Jesus brings the Hosanna people need, not always the Hosanna they expect. This is why many in this crowd who are chanting Hosanna on Sunday are going to cry crucify on Friday. Jesus fails as the Messiah. Instead of overthrowing the Romans, he was overthrown by them, by the religious leaders. He didn't bring the Hosanna that they expected. Now on this side of the story, where we stand today, where David prayed just a minute ago, David White did, we know that Jesus will one day ride again into the city to right all the wrongs and fix all the broken. He's going to triumph over nations. He's going to bring true peace. But this time, Mark 11, he entered the city to give us the Hosanna. We really needed Hosanna from ourselves. And so what I've been wondering a lot lately is this. When I cry out to God, Hosanna, save me, what am I really wanting? And I'm discovering that most of the time I'm wanting deliverance from a situation. I want him to fix this. I want him to show me that. I want him to answer this question. I want him to give me this thing. And if he has come to do that in my life, I will raise up my palm branches and bless him. And if he hasn't, maybe he's not the Messiah I'm looking for. But in these moments, I'm beginning to see that maybe Jesus is bringing me a different Hosanna than I expected. Instead of saving me from my situations, maybe Jesus is trying to save me from myself. Save me from a need to control. Saving me from a need to know. Saving me from self-reliance. Saving me to some new conversations. Saving me to some new expressions of his presence. Saving me from my fears, my sins, my weaknesses. And the saving of my soul, I believe, is still happening as I look to him and I open my hands and I say, I will receive the Hosanna you want to bring. Christ did not show up in the city that day just to save these people from that situation. He was showing up to come and die to save them from themselves, from their own sins, their own misplaced faith. Now, I want you to hear this. So don't, don't miss this one part before I close. I don't believe it's wrong to ask God to save you from a situation. Of course we can cry out to him for anything. All we can do is ask. But in that crying out, are we open to the Hosanna God wants to bring us through Christ? It's a kind of Hosanna that only comes from a king on a donkey. And this is why we have Lent, this season we're starting to step into. Lent allows us to reflect on that word, Hosanna, save us, and how first and foremost, we need saving from ourselves. So let me ask you this. Where in your life are you crying out Hosanna to God? Is it in a relationship that you're in that has to do with that? Something maybe to do with your career or finances? Is there a health situation that you're crying Hosanna out? Maybe clarity for some future in your life? Please keep crying out Hosanna for those things. But could it be that maybe he's riding into the city of your life today to bring a different Hosanna? 
maybe he's not going to really rectify that situation until he's redeemed and dealt with some things in your soul. I'd like to invite you to pray with me for a moment to reflect on the hosannas that we are bringing to Christ today. This, uh, that we want to we say more than just pull me out of this. We want to say, make me what you intend. Will you pray with me? moment ago, Lord, we stood in this room and we yelled words out, chanted uh, words that people have been saying for several thousand years, words of belief and hope in the power of you to save. God, right now, I ask that you bring to our minds those things in our lives that are right now at the forefront of what we're asking you to do. not only declare our faith that you can save that, but Lord, we also open up our hearts right now to the Hosanna that you, Jesus, are wanting to bring that may be completely unexpected, that may be more about something in us than something outside of us. So for a moment, Lord, we just sit with you. We ask you to speak to us.